0: You know, often we see today's amoral world, and we assume that it's never been as bad as it is today. But then you read Romans chapter 1, Paul's famous description of the moral breakdown of Greco-Roman culture. You know, the Roman world was X-rated. It was full of unbridled indulgence and callous consciences and self-serving idolatry and perverted sexuality. It takes a strong stomach to read Romans chapter 1. In fact, three times in that chapter Paul tells us God gave them up or God gave them over. In other words, God abandoned those who had abandoned him. When the empire fell to the Goth and the Vandals, it was not their spears and swords that conquered Rome. Rome's downfall was its inability to control its own selfish and sensual desires. In other words... Rome was defeated by depravity. Rather than being conquered from without, Rome fell from within. And when Paul wrote Romans chapter 1, he was looking out his window at the city called Corinth. You see, Corinth was Paul's inspiration for his portrait of perversion. Corinth was the city that had forgotten how to blush. The Corinthian church was this tiny little boat afloat a sea of morality. And tragically, the gospel ship had sprung a leak. The city's evil had infiltrated the life of the church. And in chapters 5 through 7, Paul tries to patch the leaks. He deals with the subjects of sex and marriage within the Christian community. Paul begins chapter 5 by addressing a shocking problem In the church, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife. A young man in the church was shacking up with his stepmom. Two members, two church members, were involved, they were carrying on in blatant immorality. It was an infest of incest. And the Apostle Paul was appalled. You know, the New King James Version, it translates these first words here in verse one, it is actually reported. But commentator Alan Redpath, he renders it, it is commonly reported, or even, it is everywhere noised abroad. In short, this is the talk of the town, Paul is telling them. And Paul mourns. I mean, not even the perverted pagans tolerated this kind of immorality. This was so twisted that it didn't even make sense to amoral minds. And Paul doesn't just rebuke the perpetrators. No, he asks the church a big question. Doesn't anybody see that this is staining our reputation? that this is ruining our witness to allow this to go on in our church. Notice verse 2. He says, And are you puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you? I mean, worse than the sin this man and the stepmom were committing was the church's attitude toward the sin. They were not only tolerating the couple's awful immorality, They were proud of their tolerance. I mean, you can hear the Corinthians boast, can't you? The Bible says, judge not lest ye be judged. I mean, far be it from us to tell somebody what's right and wrong. We just teach grace here. Sounds like a 21st century rationalization. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases these verses. He renders them, one of your men is sleeping with his stepmother. And you're so above it all that it doesn't even faze you. Shouldn't this break your hearts? Shouldn't it bring you to your knees in tears? Shouldn't this person and his conduct be confronted and dealt with? You see, they were prideful when they should have been mourning. You know the Greek word translated mourned in verse 2. It was used for grieving the dead. They should have viewed this situation as a loss, A loss of virtue and purity and honor and character and witness. Instead, they were patting themselves on the back when they should have been falling on their knees and getting in this guy's face. Notice verse 3. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. Now notice this. Without even speaking to the guy personally, without even hearing his heart, without listening to all of his excuses and rationalizations, Paul went ahead and rendered a judgment. Now, you remember back in chapter 4, Paul had warned us about making superficial judgments of another man's ministry. I mean, we don't know all the facts, do we? I mean, we don't see a man's motive. But this judgment had nothing to do with motive or with ministry This was a matter of morality. You see, this couple had constructed a blatantly sinful relationship. The Old Testament was crystal clear about sexual taboos. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 8, God had plainly forbidden this kind of relationship. Understand, this was not a matter of preference or of culture. No, this was not a gray matter at all. God had addressed this in the Old Testament in black and white. And this was why Paul was able to be so dogmatic. Paul wasn't judging this man. The Bible had already judged him. Understand, Paul was no advocate of spineless spirituality. He wasn't afraid to take a stand where God takes a stand. He wasn't afraid to speak up when God had clearly spoken. You know, today's church needs to follow Paul's example. We weaken our witness when we tolerate immorality among our ranks. Church discipline needs to be taken seriously. This is what Paul does. He commands them in verse 4. He says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Now again, this wasn't a struggling believer trying to straighten out his life and get victory over his sin. Hey, that kind of a person, we need to help. We need to disciple him and encourage him. We need to help that person who's wanting victory in their life. No, this was a Christian who had deliberately chosen to ignore God's will and live in open defiance of it. And this kind of attitude cannot be tolerated. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells us that if a brother sins among us, another brother should go to him and seek to restore him. If he fails, he should come back with two or three. We can assume that the Corinthians had already taken those steps. But Jesus went on and he said that if the brother refuses to heed the two or three, then he should be brought before the whole church. And if that fails to convince him to repent, then he should get to boot. You've heard of the right hand of Christian fellowship? Well, there's also such a thing as the left foot of Christian disfellowship. But notice the goal at each stage of the discipline process it's to bring the brother to repentance. That's the goal. We want to help him. We want to alerting to his blind spots and his hardened heart and his stubbornness and and getting back right with God. You know, even after he's been kicked out, we're told that it's done so so that we've delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. The idea is that we're going to let him taste the full consequences of his decisions without the safety net of the fellowship. Hopefully, this is going to convince him of the error of his ways, and then he'll repent. You know, when a person is a part of the church, certain protections are inherent. I mean, he or she, as long as you're a part of the fellowship, you're surrounded with support and encouragement and with resources and with caring people. You know, to a degree, the church is sheltering a person from the real magnitude of their sin. Paul's advice, though, is to turn this guy out into the storm. His problem is his flesh. His I know best, I'm going to do it my way kind of attitude. So, let him do it his way. But let's make sure he doesn't have the benefits of the church surrounding him. Let him learn the hard way that he needs to humble himself and submit to God. Hey, the church does a person a disservice when we keep them from reaping the full brunt of their sin. We, we need to let them experience the harvest of what they've sown. You know it's interesting, later, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, in Second Corinthians chapter two, verse eight, to be exact, Paul encourages the church to receive this man again into their fellowship. He writes, "I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Apparently, The Corinthians had obeyed Paul, and they had kicked him out. And it had had its desired effect. Now Paul is encouraging them to take him back in. Evidently, the man's season of separation brought about the attitude of repentance. Let me just encourage you. Church discipline, it's never easy. We've been through it before. But it is often necessary, and it works. Notice verse 6, Paul addresses their previous attitude. He says, your glorying is not good. And wow, how the modern church needs to take this to heart. You know, today's world, it's tolerant of every sin except intolerance. I mean, just because the world loses its moral bearings and gets mushy about what's right and wrong, hey, that doesn't mean that the church should follow suit. Understand, We cannot be for God, and we cannot truly love people unless we're against sin. Paul warns us, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You know, sin is like yeast. It works beneath the surface, but eventually it permeates and it sours the whole lump. Sin is like a cancer. If it's allowed to spread, it can destroy the whole body. But if it's caught early, it can get cut out. When it comes to bad attitudes and blatant sin within the church, it needs to be dealt with sooner rather than later. Tolerance or reluctance can be lethal. If these stubborn sins aren't cut out of the body, they can spread and they can infect others. Notice verse 7, Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. Purge out the old leaven, he says. Get rid rid of the infecting behavior that's polluting the life and witness of the church. Hey, obviously, this is not popular within the modern church, but oh, how this is needed if we're going to be the church God desires us to be. He says, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us, Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Notice Paul calls Jesus our Passover. You know the Jewish Passover was part of a three-day feast known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the eve of exiting Egypt, the Jews were told not to inject their bread with the yeast or with the leaven. They were leaving the next day. They wouldn't have time for the bread to rise. It was all a symbol of their faith. But the Passover feast was full of symbols that all spoke of Jesus. Christ is the object of our faith. He is our sacrificed lamb, our Passover lamb. He is our hidden matzah. He is our cup of redemption. If you've experienced a Passover Seder, you know what these things mean. And as the Jews celebrated with unleavened bread, we too celebrate Christ with sincere devotion and with the avoidance of these kinds of deliberate sins. Notice verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle. Now, what epistle? We're not sure. He just pulls us out of the thin air. I wrote to you in my epistle. What letter is he talking about? Well, we call the letter we're reading first corinthians but in reality this must have been second corinthians apparently he wrote a previous epistle some scholars suggest that second corinthians you can read this later chapter 6 verse 14 through chapter 7 verse 1 was actually the missing letter just got inserted into second corinthians Others conclude that it was a correspondence that's now been lost. We're not sure which one it was, but we know that there was a previous letter. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners or the idolaters. Since then, you would not need to go out of the world or you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. Understand, the Corinthians had gotten it backwards. They were turning up their noses at their heathen neighbors while they were ignoring the sin within their own ranks rest assured when the church views the folks god wants to reach as the enemy we become worthless to god you know when we come out of the world we're not supposed to shut the door behind us no we're supposed to turn around with love and with a helping hand and bring as many people with us to christ as we can and yet that's not what happens in a lot of churches the saints become snobs, immoral people, irreligious people. They get the impression that the church is a club for the clean cuts rather than a hospital for the messed ups. I heard a sad statistic recently that by the time a person has been a Christian for two or more years, they've lost all meaningful relationships with unbelievers. When you first get saved, all your friends were non-Christians. But after you've been a Christian for a while, you know, know, you've started weeding out your friends. You've started making changes. And and if you're not careful, you can wind up with no Christian friends. After two years, a lot of Christians, their whole life now revolves around the church and around other Christians. And what's sad about this is that they lose opportunities to cultivate friendships with non-Christians. You know, I believe in the importance of Christian fellowship. But connecting to a church doesn't mean and shouldn't mean disconnecting from the world. No, we often become so worried, so fearful, that the world will infect us with its evil, that we don't cultivate opportunities to affect the world for good. You know, it's easier just to hang out with Christians in a sterile, temptation-free environment than it is to rub shoulders with the lost, especially on their own turf. That can be risky business. You know, that's like Jesus leaving the halls of heaven and coming to earth. Or that's like the guy who took a risk to reach out to you, to tell you about Jesus when you first were saved. Maybe it's time some of us stopped playing it so safe and took that risk ourselves. You know, our enemy is not the sinner who doesn't know Jesus. I mean, if he wanted to change, he couldn't. He lacks the power. No, our enemy is the person who claims to know Jesus, yet stubbornly holds on to his sin and has no desire to change. Paul says that the church needs to shun not the heathen outside the church, but the hypocrite within the church. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging those who are are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away yourselves, from yourselves, the evil person. Now, I get weary of pastors who are always eager to condemn the ungodly world. You know, they're always on their soapbox pointing out what's wrong with the world. But what do you expect? Why do we expect sinners not to sin? I mean, our place is not to judge the lost world. We need to love and reach the lost. No, if the church wants to judge someone, why don't we start with ourselves? Why don't we clean up the church? Then we'll have a more winsome and effective witness. Then when God judges the world, hopefully there'll be fewer people to judge. Chapter 6 deals with another problem in the Corinthian church. Paul begins Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? (laughs) The Corinthians had become so dysfunctional that they were settling their grievances before the pagan courts. And again, Paul was appalled. At such a horrible testimony. I mean, why would anyone want to join a group of folks so fractured that they couldn't settle their own disputes? Paul rebukes them in verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He's thinking eternally here. You know, in Luke chapter 19... In his parable of the minas, Jesus makes this promise. He says, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. When Jesus returns to earth, he'll establish his kingdom. He'll reign for a thousand years. And guess who will reign with him? You will, and I will. Apparently, those who are faithful now will reign with him then. I'm hoping he puts me in charge of Hawaii. If I get to choose my cities, one of them is going to be Honolulu. So if one day we're going to rule over cities, why can't we solve silly little problems among ourselves now? Why are we dragging a brother before the worldly judges? This is Paul's logic. Notice verse 3. Do you not know that we shall judge angels... How much more things that pertain to this life? Now this is a verse that blows my mind. This boggles my brain. Who knows the full extent of what this means? I mean, Psalm eight tells us that man was created a little lower than the angels, but one day man will be exalted above the angels. Hebrews one verse fourteen refers to the angels as ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. What's that? That means that the angels were created to minister to you and me, heirs of salvation? Apparently so. Now I don't know how all this is going to work out. I don't know if one day I'm going to hand my guardian angel a report card. Maybe, I don't know. Yo, Gabe, what about that fender bender back in 1978? You know, where were you? I don't know if that's the way it's going to come down or not. But one day, we're going to judge the angels. Reminds me of the wife riding in the car with her husband. She says, aren't you driving a little fast, dear? The husband countered. He said, well, don't you believe in guardian angels? Our angel will protect us. Imagine a speeding husband getting spiritual on his wife. She replies, well, I do believe, but you left our angel miles back there. She apparently believed that angels only drive the speed limit <laughs> and no faster. I don't know about that. Exactly how, I'm not sure. But I do know that somehow we are going to judge the angels. What a heavy responsibility. But again, notice Paul's meaning. If that's true, we're going to judge the angels one day. Why not in the here and now? Why aren't we able to settle the little differences that crop up between us why can't we settle our disputes why are we rushing to the pagan courts he says if then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge now here now Paul's getting sarcastic you read chapter 5 with me earlier we saw how that the Corinthians had looked down their noses at the heathen people around them so why are they depending on those heathen people to judge their disputes you know, it you know, just not, doesn't make sense. He says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? I mean, isn't there one wise person in the church who has enough discernment that you'll trust with a settlement? He says, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, It is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? In other words, he says it would be better that you just go ahead and accept it. Just be defrauded. Just take a personal hit than to disgrace the name of Christ by taking a brother to court. He's saying that we should be willing to suffer personally, in order to preserve the reputation of the church and of Christ publicly. We should rather suffer personally than for Christ to suffer publicly. He says, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. It was a shame what was occurring in the Corinthian church. You know, in most families, the unwritten rule is not to air your dirty laundry. You know that, I know that. The worst thing for you to do for your marriage is to hash over your spouse's problems in public. Don't chat up your husband's faults at the next lady's brunch. I mean, the problem here was not that the Christians couldn't get along. Hey, we are all going to have quarrels. You know, we we live in the flesh. You know, we have disagreements. We have problems. The problem wasn't that there were quarrels among the Christians. That's going to exist. We're human beings. But what we should be doing is making every effort possible to be discreet and to settle these disputes in-house. The church should be moderating its own clashes, not the civil courts. And that's what was going on in Corinth. Paul writes in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators. And now he starts listing the unrighteous. First on his list, fornicators. This word fornication is from the Greek word pornos, from which we get our term pornography. This is really a broad sweeping term that refers to any form of illicit sexual activity, prostitution, adultery living together before marriage, hooking up casually, friends with benefits. On and on the list goes. These are all classified as sexual immorality or fornication. This includes everything from seeing a pretty girl and thinking a lustful thought to grotesque bestiality. And sadly, the internet today has made both available at the click of a mouse. Paul is warning That if you keep clicking the mouse, if you continually and persistently indulge in these kinds of perversions, you will rot out your soul. You will get in a rut from which you may never escape. Paul isn't saying that a person who's tempted and fails in a moment of weakness can't inherit the kingdom of God. That would be a contradiction to other scriptures. There is forgiveness What he is saying, though, is that a true relationship with God will not allow an uninterrupted lifestyle of sexual sin. He says, these people won't inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. a literal translation reads, nor effeminate, nor abusers. In other words, the passive and the active participant in a homosexual act. He's speaking to both. Again, this doesn't mean that a man or a woman who struggles to overcome homosexual thoughts and tendencies cannot be a Christian. Doesn't mean that. Even if they stumble and fall to temptation, there is still forgiveness in Christ. But it does mean that a person who accepts homosexuality and homosexual relationships as a legitimate form of sexual expression and then practices these behaviors void of any repentance, this is a person who will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what Paul says. His list continues in verse 10. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now again, what applies to homosexuals Also goes for thieves, for greedy people or covetous, for alcoholics. If a person engages in the uninterrupted, unrepentant practice of these sins, it's evidence that there is something amiss in their relationship with God. Though they say they're a Christian, the evidence speaks otherwise. Notice again the weightiness of these words. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, these people aren't going to be walking down the halls in heaven. Now, again, I want to put this passage in what I think is the proper context because I want to be clear. 1 John 1, verse 8 is written to Christians. And John tells us, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Nowhere does the Scripture say that unless a Christian is perfect, they won't make it to heaven. It does not say that. We know we're all going to sin. At times, a Christian is going to sin. We're going to stumble at times and covet our neighbor's stuff. Or we're going to lose our temper. Or we're going to drink too much. Or sometimes the sin is sexual. But we can't do it perpetually. When we fall, we've got to get back up and repent and learn to trust again. But understand, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the same guy who wrote, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, he later writes this, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, for he cannot sin because he has been born of God. The idea is that a believer born of God cannot continue in sin. Now, he can stray. He can wander off the path. But God's Spirit will recalibrate him toward righteousness. An unbeliever will occasionally slip up and do good. But you know he's a sinner at heart. And sin colors his path. Whereas a believer might slip up in sin. But God's Spirit lives within him. Love for God and love for others colors his path. Here's what Paul is saying. When a believer sins, he's acting out of character. Whereas a life lived hostile to the will of God, that's the life that won't inherit heaven. Now verse 11, got to read it. And I love the first six words in verse 11. I mean, these are some of the most hopeful words in all of the Bible. He says, and such were some of you. I mean this is the most grace soaked blood bought line in all of the Bible. Apparently the church in Corinth the Christians who made up the church at Corinth they consisted of a group of former fornicators and adulterers and idolaters and homosexuals and sodomites, and thieves, and covetous, and drunkards, and revilers, and extortioners who had received the love of Christ and had been redeemed and transformed by the power of the gospel. Isn't that incredible? And such were some of you. The Corinthian Christians, they didn't come from good moral upbringings. I mean, not many of them were Boy Scouts and Brownies. I mean, these folks were a wild bunch. But notice the operative word. Were. Such were some of you. This was all in the past now. In Christ, they had become a new creation. I love what Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians. He says, old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that, my friend, is the gospel. Jesus takes the scum of the earth... And he turns us into the heirs of heaven. Paul writes, But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Wow, what a verse. You were filthy, but now you've been washed clean. You were worthless, but now you've been sanctified and made special. You were guilty. But now you've been justified and made right with God. He cleans us up. He sets us apart. He makes us right while the power of the gospel. And then he sets us free to live our lives in love. Notice verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now this is what's called the Christian ethic. Judaism has its Ten Commandments. There is the five laws of Islam. Here are the Christians' do's and don'ts, and it's going to surprise you. I mean, here is the moral code by which all Christians in all cultures should live. Here it is. All things are lawful. What? All things are lawful? What kind of loose, permissive code of behavior is that? I mean, the person who accuses Christianity of being strict and stringent and repressive and legalistic hasn't read verse 12. According to verse 12, there are no taboos. Anything goes if you're a Christian. You can't get freer than all things are lawful. But he doesn't stop there. Read the rest of the sentence. But all things are not helpful. You see, the Christian is free from the law, from the do's and don'ts. Because God doesn't want us to be governed by law. He wants us to be governed by love. Here's how Christianity works. Rather than assigning new rules, God sends His Spirit into our hearts to rule over us. He changes us from the inside out by His Spirit. Whereas once our nature was to buck God and beat out others, the Holy Spirit supplies us a new nature one that now loves God and loves his neighbor. Thus, the issue for the Christian is no longer, is it lawful, but is it helpful? Will it deepen my love for Christ? Will it benefit my brother? Then I'm free to participate. You see, the decision-making filter for the Christian is no longer a set of laws, but it's love. You see, laws are like a leash on a wild dog. They choke the dog from doing what he wants. Christianity doesn't need laws or leashes. We're transformed from a dog into a child of God. Our concern now is to love others and to glorify God. Again, the question is not, is it lawful? But does it help us love God and love others? Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now here are the Christians' concern. Here's the Christian's concern when it comes to conduct. Since Christ died to make me free, then it makes sense that my priority should be to stay free. Make sense? Thus, anything that threatens to take away my freedom in Christ and impose upon me some form of bondage, then this becomes sin to me. In other words, if I'm not free to put it down, then I'm not free to pick it up. Here's the Christian ethic. I'm free to participate if it's helpful and if it doesn't rob me of the freedom Christ bought for me. Take alcohol, for example. I'm free to drink a glass of wine as long as I'm free to stop with that one glass. But if I have physiological tendencies that make me addictive to alcohol then it's a sin for me to take the first sip of this stuff. Again, here is the only rule for the Christian. Do what you want as long as you don't fumble away your faith or cause your neighbor's faith to stumble. The Christian isn't governed by law. We're to be governed by love. Verse 13, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. He's saying smoking cigars, eating lots of red meat, fatty foods, foods for the stomach. I mean, keeping your lungs clear and your arteries open, this has some definite short-term benefits. But in the long run, we're all dead. Doesn't matter. I mean, both a healthy guy and a sickly guy, I'm sorry, both a healthy dead guy and a sickly dead guy are both dead guys, aren't they? I mean, the ancient world was full of dietary and aesthetic restrictions. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians that, hey, they were right in exercising their liberty to eat and drink as they pleased. Fasting or feasting, kosher or unkosher, cholesterol or no cholesterol, it has zero impact on eternity, our eternal destiny. But the Corinthians, they had mistakenly taken the same attitude towards sex. You see, the Corinthian logic is like that of many folks today. I've got a hunger drive. I've got a thirst drive. I've got a sleep drive. I've got a sex drive. So since it's not a sin for me to eat anything I want or to drink anything I want or to sleep any time I want, then it must not matter to God then if I have sex whenever and with whomever I want. That's faulty thinking. But that was the Corinthian thinking. And in the remainder of the chapter, Paul straightens it out. He begins, Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Now here's Paul's logic. The Lord isn't all that interested no he has some interest but he's not all that interested in what you do to your body I mean you can take care of your body and you can live to be hundred you can live off potato chips and you can drop dead at forty I mean but believe it or not that's not God's chief concern why? because God is one day going to resurrect your body he's going to perfect it one day anyway Therefore, what you do to your body is not near as important to God as what you do with your body. That's what really concerns the Lord. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot Is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Here's what Paul's saying. Unlike eating and drinking and sleeping, sexual activity carries deep spiritual connotations. Sex is not just about human relationships. It speaks of and impacts eternal relationships. Even our relationship with God. You see, sex isn't just another bodily function. It's a spiritual act as well as it is a physical act. I like to think of sex as super glue. Hey, it's great to use super glue as long as you put it on the right stuff. As long as you glue together the right stuff. Super glue creates a permanent, unbreakable bond. I mean, try to pull something apart after it's been superglued, and it doesn't separate as easily as it joined, does it? In fact, there's ripping, there's tearing, not just at the point where the two parties touched, but now the tear goes further and deeper, and it becomes broader. And this is what happens with sex. It doesn't just interlock two bodies, but whether you realize it or not, it fuses together two souls, two spirits. And when you try to separate them after sex, they don't separate as easily. There's hurt and tearing and ripping involved. A man once wrote to Ann Landers seeking advice. She posted it in her column Dear Ann, I've been sleeping with three women for several months. Until a few days ago, none of them knew the others existed. Things were fine. By chance, two of them met, compared notes, and found me out. Now they're furious with me. What am I going to do? P.S., please don't give me any of your moral junk, signed, Trapped. I love how Ann replied. She said, Dear Trapped, The one major thing that separates the human race from animals is a God-given sense of morality. Since you don't have a sense of morality, I strongly suggest you consult a veterinarian. Tragically, our society mistakenly sees sexual immorality or sexuality as little more than animal instinct. But sex carries with it profound spiritual implications. You see, when you become a Christian, your body is no longer your own. It's the property of Jesus. He purchases it. You become literally... You and I become literally the body of Christ, do we not? The Holy Spirit dwells within our spirit. Verse 17 tells us, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. We become one spirit with the Lord. We become united with the Lord. This means that if you engage in any form of sex outside the boundaries of what God allows, heterosexual marriage, you are prostituting the body of Christ. That's what you're doing. You're selling out your fidelity and your loyalty to Jesus for the cheap thrill of a moment's pleasure. You see, when a believer logs on to a pornographic website, you've logged the body of Christ onto that website. For a believer to climb into bed with another man's wife, you have pulled the bed sheets up over the body of Christ. Do you see that? When a believer walks into a strip club, it's the body of Christ that has entered that strip club. I mean, this should shock us. This should, this should cause us to run in the opposite direction. Participate in sex outside marriage, and you're not just risking future rejection or venereal disease or unwanted pregnancy or AIDS. More importantly, you are violating the spiritual bond between you and and your Lord. Hey, if you're joined spiritually to Jesus, why would you defile that union to be joined to someone else? And yet, that is exactly what we do when we have sex outside of the marriage commitment. Illicit sex betrays the fidelity between Christ and his body. And that's why Paul writes in verse 18 Flee sexual immorality. You know, a teenager once asked his grandpa, Gramps? Your generation didn't have to worry about all these venereal diseases. What did you wear to have safe sex? Old Gramps answered, Son, we wore a wedding ring. It's good. Remember Joseph in Potiphar's house? I mean, Mrs. Potiphar, she was wearing an item out of the Victoria's Secrets catalog. She dropped her bathrobe right in front of him. Nobody was home. Nobody would ever know. Joseph stood there in shock i bet his pulse started to race. i bet his hormones surged. She threw herself at him and grabbed his cloak. She started to undress him as she invited him, lie with me. And what did Joseph do? Genesis 39 tells us, he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. He got out of Dodge, man. That's what he did. When the devil and a Mrs. Potiphar stir your passions... When temptation makes a pass at you, you need to recall Paul's words here and Joseph's example. Flee sexual immorality. Don't sit and try to fight it. Just split and take the flight. Preserve your purity at all costs. Don't sell your integrity for a passing pleasure. He says, every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality... Sins against his own body. A person's identity is so tied to their sexuality. Maleness and femaleness is a part of it, but it goes much deeper. You know, our capacity to reproduce ourselves is tied to our sexuality. Our sexuality above everything else represents who we really are. That's not true of other bodily functions. I mean, what I put in my stomach sustains me, but it has nothing to do with me multiplying my likeness. That's why you can watch me eat, and it has no bearing on my personality. You can watch me eat, and I'll look at you. You'll look at me. We'll just kind of stare at each other like we're both weird. I mean, no big deal to me if you want to watch me eat. But if you saw me naked, that'd be a whole different thing, wouldn't it? Man, I'd blush. I'd want to cover up. That's a bigger deal. And this is why every time you're intimate with someone, you're giving a piece of yourself away to that person. You're breaking off a little piece of yourself that you can never get back. As Paul says, you share your spirit with that person. And when you give yourself away with no guarantee of high return, it only cheapens you and degrades you. This is one reason why Paul says that sexual sin is a sin against your own body. Allow yourself over and over to be used as a plaything rather than valued as a person. And it devastates your dignity and your sense of self-worth. In the wake of the sexual revolution in the 60s, we've got a whole baby boomer generation today of adults with low self-esteem. And why? Because they've allowed themselves to be used over and over and over again. Illicit sex may produce some kind of enjoyment and incitement, but it doesn't provide enrichment. And that's why God created sex. It's love's enrichment. Sex outside of marriage is like robbing your own bank. (laughs) What you've saved, what you've treasured, gets taken from you. You never see it again. Whereas sex in marriage is like making a deposit into your account. There's safety. There's a feeling of security. And the deposit becomes a long-term investment that compounds interest and yields rewarding dividends. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? He refers back to the Old Testament temple. It was God's habitation. It had one owner. It was for one purpose. The service and worship of God. And likewise, your body is the Holy Spirit's habitation. It too is purchased by the blood of Jesus. Thus, you're not free to use it as you please. You're to use it as the Lord pleases. And it too is for service and for the worship of God. This is how Paul finishes chapter 6. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. And there we'll finish it tonight.